my Venezuelans have gone through, not only where, where they were living, but what they did to get here. And the little bit they've told me about the beast, which is a name for this train that goes up through Mexico. And some people call it the death train. And Fraeli, I remember just covering her face with her hands and saying, nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. And how can you not help? As news of Chicago's migrant crisis grew throughout the summer, Oak Park retiree Elaine Pierce opened her home to strangers from Caracas and Campacho, Venezuela. Seven asylum seekers and Elaine under one roof have become a mutually symbiotic partnership. The migrants benefit from free shelter and safety, and they in return think of Elaine like a mom, and they help her as she battles terminal cancer. This is a Block Club Chicago podcast. I'm John Hanson. I live in Oak Park. I'm retired, so I have time. Um, My kids are gone, so I have room. I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and I remember my mom always feeding hobos. We're talking the 1950s, so this is really hobos. And I remember they would... I don't know if they made the secret mark on the fence post, but uh, we would get hobos and she would always feed them. And my father always taught us that if there was somebody hitchhiking and we were in the car, then it was our responsibility to pick them up because we had something they needed and we could help them. So I've grown up with this, you know, you help what you can. When did it become, you know, while watching the news and all these stories and as we hear more and more about asylum seekers arriving at what point did you say okay i i grew up in a house that welcomed people i'm going to do the same oh well that was simple i saw an announcement in my church bulletin that was talking about the refugees sleeping on the cement floor at the 5701 west madison station and suggesting that we drop off food or we drop off blankets or clothing and i thought well that's a band-aid i mean it's an important band-aid a critical band-aid but nevertheless a Band-Aid. So I contacted the people and the next day they came over to check out my house. And the next day I had um, one, two, three, four, five, five people in the house. And then a few days later I had seven people in the house. Never a worry in your mind? No, no, there was never. And, And I saw some like comments on a website And there was one that was hilariously clever. And it said, I will pay for this woman's life insurance policy if she makes me her beneficiary. And I thought that was just hilarious, but it's just such a different perspective from what I have. And what is that perspective? You take a leap of faith and you make your table longer and you say, it's okay, there's room. So seven people, is that currently what live in the house right now or? One, two, three, four, five. Well, if you count the two little kids, it is. But the two little kids make more noise and more mess than anybody else. So I always count them. <laughs> of course you do. How long have they been there? When did you start welcoming them into your home? I think it was the first weekend in August. Yeah, they've been here almost three months. What has it been like? Oh, they are a gift. They are just as much a gift to me as I am to them. And I don't mean to sound 
you know, Susie Petunia smarmy, but they are so kind and they are so grateful and they are so loving. And every once and then I will get them to say a little bit about what they went through. And it makes me realize what a safe little bubble I live in as a white suburban middle-class retiree with enough money to live on and how much I have and that I have no idea what they have gone through. I worked in, how do you say, Chinese food, in fast food, and I studied business administration until I had to drop out because of the state of the country. That's Jose Hernandez. He's 27, spent more than a month living at a police station. The Sun-Times, which did the write-up of Elaine and led me to call her, big shout-out to them, says that Jose is a native of Caracas, and he stays in Elaine's house with a partner that he met at the police station and her two-year-old son. He's not the only Jose in the house. There's also 26-year-old Jose Castro. His family is from a mountainous area in Venezuela near the Colombia border. He and his wife, Rayeli, you heard Elaine refer to her at the beginning of the episode talking about the beast train. They live there with their two-year-old son, Melanie. Then they live a floor below. I didn't have a home, and my daughter was a newborn, and we didn't have a place to live. Eventually, I thought of leaving my country, because honestly, it was a rough situation. And economically, you couldn't get anything over there. But thank God now, I have a future. You don't speak Spanish, right? No, we use Google Translate on the telephone, which is good for saying, close the door and this is a pumpkin pie. But as far as having any kind of decent conversation, no. Then I have to ask various neighbors who speak Spanish to come in and then we all talk together, which we've done a few times and has worked out very well. What's a day like at the house? Well, Claudia takes her son to the daycare and she's gone before I get up. They're gone by eight o'clock. Fraeli works four days a week, 10 hours a day. So she, her hours are weird. She works at a woman's dress shop um, that sells those fancy quesa calinta, the 15-year-old coming of age thing. Quinceañeras, yeah. Thank you. So she, uh, sometimes they're gone before I get up too, because my sleeping hours are so odd. And then when the boys go out to look for, when Jose and Jose and Esteban go to look for day jobs, they're usually out pretty early. And if they don't find anything, then they're usually back by, you know, 11 or 12. Because if you don't have a job by then, it's, it's not going to be there. But I spend most of my days on the sofa. But also, I'm so wealthy in, in so many ways because I have a daughter who lives close to the Arboretum, and two nights a week, I go and stay with her. Oh. So I can go, and lovely as Melanie and Matthias are, I'm 68 years old. I'm not used to being around kids anymore. Yeah. And I go to Trinity's house, and it's quiet, and it's peaceful, and it's pristine, and... You know, I don't look over there and there's some gum stuck to the wood. You know, (laughs) (laughs) those little things of what kids do. Little things. That's right. And when you go to your daughter's house and you leave for the night, your people. Oh, no, I tell my people I'll be gone two nights in a row and I tell them the house is yours. 
so they can have the run of the house. So the kids can play the piano and they don't have to be rebuked by the parents who think they're bothering me by playing the piano and they can, you know, do whatever, whatever they want. You mentioned that they help you as much as you help them. It's anything I ask them to do, of course, you know, if I want them to rake, my, well, they rake the yard yesterday and they're always offering me whatever food they have made for supper because they make their own food. I help get them set up with some food pantries in the area and they're very good with public transportation, with buses, and uh, the Asylum Connection got them set up with stuff they would need. And I have a friend who belongs to a bike club, and he got bikes from the bike club. And so they're pretty much independent of me. But, you know, they're always bringing me food to eat. And when Claudia comes home from work at 5.30, she, I'm always sitting on the sofa because I'm so tired all the time. And she plops down beside me and punches her shoulder into mine and puts puts her head on my shoulder. And you know, there's just so much love. I was going to say, I mean, the, the raking of the lawn and giving you some of their food is wonderful, but there must be that emotional connection, oh. even without a with even with the language barrier. Oh, absolutely. And and it's so funny. There's there's a Jose upstairs and a Jose downstairs and the Jose downstairs. When I need him, I'll, you know, I'll open the basement door and I, I call down. I say, Jose. And I hear this, Oi! <laughs> it's just this, it just makes me laugh. What would you say to people who um, are maybe considering doing something similar? I would say you take the leap of faith. Some of the comments I saw, there are going to be bad apples of every nationality. There are going to be bad apples of every skin color. But I believe that the most of the people that are coming up here are coming for reasons of livelihood, critical stuff. They're not just coming up here hoping to have a vacation when they get here. I can see how hard my people work to get day jobs. Esteban this morning left at five o'clock on his bicycle to get to a place that would take him an hour and a half to get to for a day job. And when I realized that, I said, no, you can't do that. I'll drive you. So, but, but he was going to do that. And he didn't even think about it. And he didn't even think about asking me. No, it was just, this is what I do to get a day job. So, so they work hard. Has your daughter come to help out at all? Or what does she think about all this? Oh, she's very supportive, but she's, she works at the Martin Arboretum and she is so oh. busy there that um, she doesn't come here very often. She's she's met them, but uh, no, she's she's all for it. She thinks it's great. You're going through your health issues as well, which I read about in the Sun-Times. Does it make you feel, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that helping that at all, at least emotionally coping to have people in the house or are those two things unrelated? No, I don't. I don't think they're related uh no maybe they are um i'm more tired with them here but i was getting more tired anyway as the cancer progresses so you know who do you say is the cause of the extreme fatigue but they're so you know it, it's like i'll drop a pencil and i'll lean over to pick up the pencil and if somebody is beside me he'll run over and pick up the pencil and give it to me and say no 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 <laughs> like like i'm going to die tomorrow <laughs> and 
they're, they're just looking out for me all the time. Really, like I'm telling you, Miss Elaine, I love her like a mother, because a person like that one sitting next to me, there's none other, and I'm very grateful to her, and all my respects to her, and I'm always on the lookout for her, because I know her health is delicate, and we're here for whatever she needs in the moment. I don't have many things to, it's hard to say all the things that I feel for her, because she's like my mother. Because here in Chicago, I don't have anyone, and she's the only person that helped me when I was in need with my daughter, who is two years old, and my wife. The most important question is, what, what would I say to those people who, who would try this? I would say start out with a list of those things that are most important to you. For instance, it's really important to me that I have a quiet house. So I've never had a problem with them playing music loud. But if I did have somebody playing music loud, oh my goodness, you know that would be a, a major point of discussion. But if you just make things clear, they are so glad to be in a home and so glad to be out of a tent or off a cement floor that uh, I would think almost all of them would bend over backwards to be as good a guest as they could possibly be. When you read comments or you see coverage or hear from people that say things like they should go back home, what does that make you feel? Sometimes I'm glad I have no grandchildren. I look at the world and it's so discouraging. But then I think I am one person. I am just a normal, everyday person, your neighbor, two houses down, and I'm doing one thing that I can do. And I think sounds maudlin. If everybody just does one thing, I, I don't even let my mind go there as to how much of a change we could make. If everybody just did one thing. I was thinking of that Frozen 2 song from Disney. And there, it's something like, do the next right thing, I think is what it is. And that's that's what we need to do. I'm sorry, I'm preaching. We need to do the next right thing. and everybody. Everybody can do that. When I was emailing with you, I even kind of struggled to label who was in your home. I was like, your extended family, your guests. You just said my Venezuelans. How do you refer to them when you talk about them to other people? I call them my family or my people. I usually call them my people. It's, it's a very possessive feeling. These are my people. Um, they have told me already they don't want to leave the house until I die. And I think it's because they feel safe here. When I ask them about being here, the first thing they always say is safe. And, and I think about the extortion that was going on in their hometowns where, where they were having problems earning enough money to buy food because there was so much extortion from the government officials. You know, and, and we have problems in the U.S., but I don't think we've gotten to that point. They said they... They don't want to leave that house until you pass away. Does it give you fear that you don't know what would happen to them? Or does are you trusting that there's other people that will help? I, I don't know how to ask Elaine. I'm sorry. Well, well, I'm full of cancer, but I have absolutely no pain. So to me, that says that my oncologist is doing something right. I feel good. I'm just exhausted. So I think I'm going to be around you know, at least another year. But 
Jose downstairs, we are all rejoicing because Jose just got all his papers. So that's encouraging to everybody else that, you know, we're going through the process and getting the papers. And I think it's it's just a matter of a month or two before they all have their papers. And once they have their papers, they are so much more free to get better jobs, to get solid jobs. And they're all, all such hard workers. They're, they don't say no. They go where they have to go to do the day job. And and I feel very confident that that once I'm gone, they will be able to go through organizations which help first-time renters or first-time homebuyers. I think they will be very able to navigate the system by then. I, I trust that they will. That safety you provide, though, they will never forget that. And maybe they'd be resourceful enough to go from a tent to get a job to get the papers. But Elaine, without a roof over their heads and that sense of just being able to sleep comfortably, I mean, you're changing their lives. I'm sure you realize that. You know, what was really exciting was when I was talking to somebody about the ripple effect of providing housing to these refugees, whether whatever country they're from. And the woman I was talking to said, it's more than a ripple effect. She said, you're making a generational change. And I thought, oh my goodness, she's right. You know what, those of us who are trying to help, we're changing generations, which is very wonderful and very humbling and very extraordinary. Jose, do you want to stay in Chicago? Yes, of course. As I said before, in Venezuela, I have my mother and my siblings, where everything is for my daughter's future, who is growing every day, little by little. This has been a Block Club Chicago podcast. I'm John Hansen. Today's episode edited by Iridian Fierro. Thanks for listening. We'll drop another pod on you soon.